Good morning, everyone. Merry Christmas to everyone as well. Enjoy your day yesterday with family and friends. This morning, as we come to God's Word, we're going to be in Titus, Titus chapter 2. You have to your Bible. Yeah, if you want to grab one of the few Bibles, you're welcome to do so as well. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. As you're doing that, I'm going to share this, that this Christmas there's been one song I've listened to more than any other. It's called The Space Between by Sandra McCracken. Although it's on our Christmas album, it's not your typical Christmas song. Sandra wrestles with the emotions of another Christmas day coming and going. Now we live post-Christmas. At first, she focuses on the time between Christmas and New Year's. She expresses some sadness and uncertainty, followed by a call to bless the week that follows. And she sings this, Unplug the lights, take down the tree. The less we have, the less we need. From Christmas night to New Year's Eve, we bless the space that's in between. Then she moves beyond December into the coming spring and sings this. December ends, make way for dreams, wait for the light to raise the spring. Embrace it all from hope to doubt, like ocean waves washing in and out. She reminds us that spring is coming and the importance of bracing all of life from hope to doubt. So here we are this morning. We have entered the space between. Christmas has come and gone as we reflect on the season of Advent and Christmas Day in the days, weeks, months ahead, there's no doubt a variety of feelings and emotions. And I thought this song is a great picture and reminder of what the Christian life is like. Because we surely live in the space between. God in His great wisdom has ordained that we live between the first and second comings of the Lord Jesus Christ. As we live our lives, we often run the gamut of emotions as well. We experience sadness, joy, doubt, peace, uncertainty. Yet the final and ultimate spring is coming. So let's go to God's Word and learn how to live in the space between. And by the grace of God, may we Embrace it all. This is Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. This is God's holy word. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. 
You are zealous for good works. Let us pray. Father, we are grateful for this morning. Lord, we know that your mercies are made you every morning. Lord, thank you for sustaining us through the night. Thank you for Christmas Day yesterday. Thank you for the joy of being together with family. Thank you for your goodness to us. And Lord, as we come to your word, we ask that you would help us understand it. For these surely are spiritual things. And apart from your spirit, we cannot understand these things. Oh, Lord, we need your help. So we call and ask that the spirit would come to open our eyes, to unstop our ears, to give our, heart, give our hearts the ability to listen to your word. And Lord, I pray that during this time that I would decrease, that you would increase, and that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O oh Lord, our rock and redeemer. And to the mighty and precious name of Christ, we pray. Amen. So our text begins in verse 11 with the first coming of Christ. And at Christmas, we celebrate the birth of our Savior, the fulfillment of all the promises of God, the coming of the Messiah. And all those are accurate and correct descriptions of what Christmas is about. Yet we learn in this passage another description of what happened when Christ came. Verse 11 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Paul describes Jesus' first coming by saying, The grace of God has appeared. As we begin to consider this, we must note this, that grace did not come into existence when Jesus came the first time. God has always been a God of grace. The very moment that sin entered the world because of Adam, God was gracious. The Lord did not kill Adam or his wife Eve. Yes, there were consequences for their actions, but God provided clothing for them. And he made a promise in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that someone would come and restore what was lost. The theme of, of a gracious God runs throughout the Old Testament. God extended grace to Noah and his family. Genesis 6, 8 says... But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And so often we read that and we think, hey, Noah must have been a pretty good guy. He found favor in the eyes of the Lord. But this is actually the first use of the word grace in the Bible. A better and more accurate translation would be, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Grace was extended to Abraham, Moses. David and the nation of Israel, even, th even through rampant rebellion and sin. Then we get to the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15 at the birth of Jesus, where grace visibly appeared. John 1.14 tells us that Jesus was full of grace and truth. Grace was shown not only in his birth, but his gracious words. And deeds, and above all, by his death on the cross. And to help us better, better understand how gracious Christ's first coming is, we have to understand also the use of the word appeared in our text. The word for appeared 
was used in Greek literature for the sudden arrival of a god or some other hero who would rescue his people. This is so similar to all the Marvel movies from the last several years, right? Think about Iron Man, Spider-Man, Hulk, Black Widow, Captain America, Black Panther, and what they do in the movies. They, they appear in the last second, swoop in to rescue people from imminent danger, and sometimes even death. Just as you think all is lost, evil is going to triumph, and the villains are going to be victorious, a hero comes in and saves the day. What a vivid and beautiful picture of what God has done for us graciously in Christ. He has provided His Son for us. And because of sin, we were trapped and truly a people not deserving to be saved. The Bible says, before knowing Christ, we were slaves, sons of disobedience, spiritually dead, and children of wrath, among other things. And to help me personally to better appreciate and be grateful for what God has done, I do something we like to do often in sports or even life. Go through the shoulda, coulda, wouldas. You know when you do something and it doesn't go as planned? You say, well, I should have done this. Or I, I could have done this. Or if, if I had to do it over again, I would have done this. And again, as a fan of Mississippi State football, I do that all the time. In Scripture, when I read difficult and unpleasant passages that talk about the wrath of God, such as John 3.36, where Jesus says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Or Romans 2.5, where Paul writes, For because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Or Revelation chapter 6, verses 15 through 17, Then the kings of the earth, referring to Jesus' second coming, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide from us the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? I try to remember, that should be me. That could be me. Or that would be me. Storing up wrath or begging the mountains to follow me, if not for the grace of God. Jesus' first coming, in, in every sense of the word, is gracious and heroic. He has truly rescued us. Our text tells us this gracious sudden arrival is for all people. Know that does not mean everyone will be saved. But a reminder that the kingdom of God is a worldwide kingdom. Just as God has saved us here in Lynchburg, God through Christ is saving people from every tribe, nation, and tongue, all because of God's gracious first appearing. Secondly, what does all this mean 2,000 years later as we live 
and the space between. In short, understanding God's grace should lead to obedience to the Word of God. We are not saved by works, but for works. It's grateful obedience. As Pastor David reminded us last week with a parable of the talents. How does, this ha- how does this obedience happen? In referring to grace, verse 12 says this in our text, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. We probably remember learning about personification from our middle school years, attributing a human characteristic to something non-human. Grace is personified, and we are told that grace trains us. This means what we think it would mean. It is describing rigorous programs in which young people were trained in biblical times. We are familiar with training programs, especially this time of year, as the new year looms, and the desire to shed a few extra pounds for the holidays is almost at its peak. Professional athletes are known for their rigorous, rigorous training programs. Probably the most well-known is Tom Brady's training program. He's won seven Super Bowls. At the age of 44, he is still excelling as an NFL quarterback. 99% of other players, much less quarterbacks, have long retired by their 40s. Brady and his personal trainer came up with a training program known as TB12. Here's a small part of the program. Tom Brady does not do bench presses or squats. He uses equipment like massage balls and resistant bands. He focuses on pliability, becoming more flexible. He eats organic, locally grown foods and avoids processed foods. He doesn't combine the fruit he eats with other foods. He doesn't combine high-protein foods with carb-heavy foods. He tries to avoid drinking water at mealtimes. He tries to stop eating about three hours before he goes to bed. Obviously, you cannot argue with the results for Tom Brady. Yet, as we think about our training as God's people, there is one major difference. Tom Brady exercises and eats to attain a certain level of performance. Our training is based upon grace. We do nothing. God through Christ has done the work for us, and the Holy Spirit is at work within us. The point is this. The love of God in Christ is so profound, so deep, so rich, so gracious, that it trains us to live in a certain way. If we truly understand what God has done for us 2,000 years ago by graciously sending the Son, it is going to impact the way that we live our lives. So what does this grace train us to do? First, Paul says it trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. In in Titus chapter 2, Paul does not give us a list of what ungodliness and worldly passions look like, but we can go to other places in Scripture. And it includes such things as sexual immorality, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, Rivalries, divisions, envy, drunkenness, lying, deceit, and disobedience to parents. That is what Paul is telling us to renounce. And the way that this happens is by the grace of God training us 
to do so. Non-Christians often wonder and ask, why are Christians so consumed with something that happened such a long time ago? Why can't we just live in the present? Who cares about what some man did so long ago? Ironic, right? Because in verse 12, what does Paul say? That understanding the grace of God in his first appearance, what? Trains us to live in the present age. We want to, if we want to know how to live obedient, God-glorifying lives, we look back to the grace of God found in Christ. This doesn't mean we're going to be perfect, but our lives should not be characterized by ungodliness and worldly passions. Paul tells us if it is, we will not inherit the kingdom of God. Our old life and new life should be different, and that comes by the work of the Holy Spirit and grace training us. There should be a struggle against sin. And if we do, and if we do give into temptation and sin, we confess our sin. We repent, knowing that we have forgiveness in and through Christ. And as much as we try to control things, we want the path of least resistance. This is a world that is full of resistance. God's word says that this present, this is the present evil age. Where Satan is the ruler of this world. And he fires darts at us and he knows our weaknesses. Remember, growing in godliness takes time. Just as physical training builds muscle. In the same way, the spiritual effects of God's grace in our lives will give us power to resist temptation. The end of verse 12 says, God's grace enables us to live self-controlled, Upright and godly lives. So please, please do not give up. Keep reading God's Word. Keep praying to your Heavenly Father. Keep laying down your life. Keep resisting temptation. Keep taking up your cross. Keep serving others. Keep loving your enemies. Keep sharing the gospel. Keep worshiping with the people of God. Holiness is a lifelong process. It will not be complete until we die or Christ returns, which leads to our last point. As grace trains us to live in the space between, we wait in hopeful expectation of the second coming of Christ. In four verses, what does Paul do? He brings together the beginning and the end of Christianity. Verse 11, his first coming. Verse 12, how to live in the space between, then the second coming. Look at verses 13 and 14. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the, of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. First notice this. That at the end of verse 13, Paul writes, Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's remove any doubt. Scripture confirms that Jesus is God. The world wants to deny the deity of Christ and only refer to him as a good teacher or man. Titus 2.13 reminds us that it's simply not true. It is our hope that our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, will appear again. And hope is not wishful thinking, but instead an assurance of what is to come. 
When thinking about the second coming of Christ, I think many of us could relate to Samuel Beckett's 1950s play, Waiting for Godot. The play is about two men waiting by a tree for a man named Godot. Neither of the two men know Godot. Over several nights, the men talk about the unseen Godot, still waiting. Finally, a boy arrives with a message from Godot that he cannot come tonight, but will appear the next day. Yet Godot does not appear the next night. In fact, Godot never appears. And the play ends with the two men contemplating different ways of committing suicide. Beckett's characters may have existed in a meaningless void, and perhaps that is how we feel about waiting for Jesus to return. But Paul assures us that that is not the case. Like the characters in Waiting for Godot, Christians do not know when Jesus will return, but unlike them, we can rely on his faithfulness. Jesus is coming back, because God's word says that he is coming back. The second appearance of Jesus should be the hope and longing of every believer in Christ. As we saw, his first appearance was rooted in grace. His second appearance will be rooted in glory. Just as God has always been gracious, the first time Jesus came, we did see his glory. John 1.14 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. His glory, however, was veiled. The second time he comes, the veil will be lifted. And we will see him in his full glory. For those who know and trust him, it will be a glorious day. The present age will come to an end and we will be transformed into the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. For those who do not know him and do not trust him, it will be a day of dread and judgment. My question to you, brothers and sisters, is this. Do you think about the end of this age? Do you talk about the new heavens and the new earth? Do you remind your children of the glories that await? Relationships without sin, enjoying work, the beauty of creation without sin, the food, the feasting, and of course the joy of being with Jesus forever. Or are you so preoccupied with the affairs of this world, thinking that your hopes and longings can be met in this present age. If so, you will be sorely disappointed. The, the world will let you down again and again and again and again. Jesus is always better. How did this happen for the people of God? In verse 14, Paul connects the Old Testament and New Testament to remind us of what Jesus has done for us. He says that he gave himself for us. This is a reminder of the Passover and the blood that was shed for us by the Lamb of God. To, to redeem us. A reminder of the exodus out of Egypt where God freed his people from Egyptian slavery. And how Jesus has redeemed and delivered us from sin. A people for his own possession. A reminder of the covenant at Mount Sinai and how Christ fulfilled the law on our behalf that we could be adopted into the family of God. All accomplished by the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Praise be to God. 
And as crazy as it may seem to an unbelieving world to look back and live our lives according to something that happened 2,000 years ago, in their eyes it's even crazier to hope and long for the return of Jesus. But that is what we do. We look backward and forward at the same time. We need to look back and remember the grace that Jesus came with in his first appearing. We need to look forward and anticipate his coming glory. We live today in light of yesterday and tomorrow. Canon Hay Aiken put it this way. The two comings of Christ are two windows in the school of grace. Through the western window, a solemn light streams from Mount Calvary. Through the eastern window shines the light of sunrise and the herald of a brighter day. So brothers and sisters, as we live in the space between and we keep looking out each window, resting in the gracious, finished work of Christ, and longing for His glorious return. Let us pray. Oh, Father, you are good. You've given us so much. Thank you for the grace that you send to us in Christ. And Lord, continue to train us by your grace. Lord, we need your help. Lord, help us to keep pressing on. And Lord, remember that you will finish the work. And Lord, we long for the day of Christ. And Lord, we know there will be a glorious day when he returns. Prepare us for that day. And Lord, help us to share the good news of what Christ has done. We love you and praise you. We give all glory to your name. For to the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.